You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue in our worship, beholding our thrice holy God, turning your Bible to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 28 to 37 this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, our greatest need this morning is to behold our holy God. And as our Lord Jesus said, if we've seen him, we've seen you, the Father. And we need the Spirit to see him. We thank you that our holy, holy, holy God is triune. We need the triune God this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning by lightening our eyes in your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to believe that Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out 20 years ago at this time. Hit the box, uh, box office about this time 20 years ago. I was taking a PhD seminar with Dr. Al Mohler at the time, and he told us he had just been invited to a special screening of the movie. He was a little concerned about seeing it because he recognized that no artistic representation could adequately uh, express all that Jesus is as the Son of God, fully God, fully man nor could it adequately express what he accomplished on the cross. But because he's a public theologian and cultural analyst and knew that he would need to speak on these matters, he went to the pre-screening. He said when he got there, the place was packed, it was buzzing, and the people were all talking about this movie that they were about to analyze and pick apart every scene the cinematography, the, the production, the directors, the actors. He said, but once the movie started, just complete silence in the room. He said, and it got to the point of the culmination of the movie, the crucifixion. He said he looked around the room, and what he saw blew his mind. People, the viewers, nonchalantly popping, placing popcorn in their mouths. And he realized they did not understand the gravity of what was going on with this world-changing event that was being depicted on film. That said, those who have arrested Jesus and are seeking to put him to death, don't understand the gravity either. They fail to grasp the significance of who Jesus is and what he came to do. As Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't understand. And in their foolishness, they have arrested him and are seeking to put him 
to death. Now, last week we saw Jesus will suffer six trials. He will undergo six trials before his crucifixion. No one gospel pieces that together. Uh, you have to bring all four gospels together to piece that together. They're not in contradiction with each other. Of course they're not. But each one is giving us a, a, a perspective they want to convey. And so that's what systematic theology does. You just piece together. And so there are six trials. The first one we only read about in John. He, he's brought before Annas. Annas was the former high priest, but he still held in high esteem among the people. Annas will then pass him on to Caiaphas, who's the present high priest. Uh, Caiaphas was a theological liberal. Uh, he was a Sadducee, did not believe in a resurrection. He only held to the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament. He then passes... Jesus on in the third trial, the Jewish trial, to the Sanhedrin. So there's three trials that he has to undergo before he's even brought before the Romans. John doesn't tell us much about the Jewish trial except his time with Annas. All it says was that he was brought to Caiaphas, John 18, verse 24. But Matthew helps fill us in. Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 59, the chief priest, that is Caiaphas, and the whole council, that is the Sanhedrin, there were 70, uh, 70 members in this ruling council, plus the high priest, 71. They were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. The end justifies the means. They're seeking false testimony. Turns out they didn't need false witnesses. Jesus would give them all the, the fodder that they would need to carry out their purposes. Matthew 26, 63, the high priest, that's Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, he quotes Daniel 7 here, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Because they recognized that that was a, a messianic text, uh, one who is divine himself. He says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? He's speaking to the Sanhedrin. And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him. The Son of God suffering for us and our salvation. But the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment. They were under the thumb of the Romans. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And so while Peter is denying his Lord a second and third time, Matthew 27 tells us, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, and led him away 
and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. He'll then endure three trials by the Romans. So there's three trials by the Jews, and now he's going to endure three trials by the Romans. Pilate wants to wash his hands of him because his wife had had a terrible dream about Jesus. So he passes him to Herod, who then passes him back to Pilate. We don't read all that in John. John conflates the two times he comes before Pilate into one for his purposes, John's purposes. And so that's where we are as we come to verse 28. Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. It was the house of Caiaphas where he was brought before Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin. They were brought into the governor's headquarters. Maybe your translation, Praetorium, the Praetorium. So they bring him to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. It is Friday. It is what we know ironically as Good Friday. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The Passover was the night before, but the entire week was a, was a series of festivities. And so that's what he's referring to here. Only John tells us this, what we see here in verse 28, that they would not enter the governor's headquarters because they were fearful of being defiled. In fact, they knew that they would be defiled from their perspective. And defilement for a Jew would last seven days. And so if they're defiled, they cannot partake in the Passover festivities. And it's the day of preparation. That's part of the festivities. Friday is the day of preparation. And so they would not be able to partake of that. But John wants you to see the irony here. The irony is remarkable. The irony is dark. They are delivering the Lamb of God, the only perfect, the only righteous, the only holy, the only good person in the history of the world to be slaughtered, and they're concerned that they not be ceremonially unclean. Terrible, horrific irony. These men were engaged in the most wicked, vile act in the history of the world, and they were concerned about being defiled. By the way, this was not in their law. You'll be hard-pressed to find it in Moses' writings. It's not there. The rabbis had created this tradition. The Mishnah tells us the dwelling place of Gentiles are unclean. It was their tradition. It was not the law of God. The rabbis had invented this to isolate them from the Gentiles. You want to talk about racism, 
This is in its purest form. Remember, God had instituted, had called Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. Here they were creating man-made laws to protect them from the people they had called, been called to be a light to. Not only that, they had missed the entire point of the Passover. The Passover was intended to point beyond itself to a new and greater exodus salvation brought about through the one in whom all the animal sacrifices pointed, the Lamb of God, the last days and final and ultimate Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But this reminds us how hard and callous our religious heart can be that has not been melted by the grace of Christ. In fact, some of the meanest people in the world are religious people. Most persecution in the world directed at Christians comes from religious people. People who know nothing of grace and mercy. I taught at Southern Seminary for 15 years and I taught a D-men class most every summer for those 15 years and these pastors would come into the class with their nose bloodied, their tail between their legs. Many of them were pastoring what we call revitalization churches, churches that needed revitalizing. Why do churches need revitalizing? In one sense, every church needs revitalizing because no church has been perfected, but unhealthy churches. The reason they're unhealthy is because there's been a famine of the word. And when there's a famine of the word and God's law is rejected or marginalized, new laws will be created. The laws of the power brokers in the church, many of them are unregenerate. And ones that are regenerate are not mature oftentimes. And so rather than centering on the law of Christ, the law of God, they create their own laws, their own traditions that do not reflect the character of God. They reflect the character of sinful men. They're not laws that reflect holiness and righteousness and love, but self-love. And if anyone breaks those laws, look out. The murderous heart comes out. That's what we see with these people. These people believed that Jesus had broken the law. But it wasn't the law of God. He, was, he came to fulfill the law of God. Because we don't fulfill the law of God. But he had broken their laws. And they wanted him dead. Beware of being that calloused, hard-hearted religious person who hasn't been melted by grace. How do you know that, that per, you're that person? You're not grateful, you're critical, you're a slanderer, and you're a gossip. If that's you, you're looking in the mirror as you look at these people. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They must have been a real witness to him of their faith. 
They wouldn't come into his building because of their man-made law, so he has to go out to them. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They know their charges will not stand in a Roman law court. So they don't answer him specifically. They go after his character. And it's an ad hominem argument. They don't answer it directly. But the Romans prohibited those they governed to carry out capital punishment. The reason for that is that, let's just say, the Jewish people who were under the thumb of of Rome, if any one of their citizens collaborated with Rome, the Jews would have had them put to death. And so they prohibited the Jews from carrying out capital punishment. The Romans would not allow them to do that even though the Old Testament law gave them authority to carry out capital punishment for blasphemers, Rome would not allow them. That's why they're having to come to the Romans about Jesus. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate knows he's done nothing. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It's here that Pilate learns their end game. They want him put to death. More specifically, they want him crucified. Because that's how the Romans carried out capital punishment. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now think about this. The religious leaders could have carried out a a vigilante stoning of Jesus. They're going to do that in a few months with Stephen. You can read that in Acts chapter 7. But the Sanhedrin... And Caiaphas, they don't want just to stone him. They want him to be crucified because that's how the Romans did it. This was the way of capital punishment for the Romans. And why is that? Well, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin wanted him to be displayed before all those who sympathize with Jesus as a cursed of God. All the way back in their, their, old, their Tanakh, their law, Deuteronomy 21, 23, it speaks about those who were hung on a tree. A hanged man is cursed by God. That's what they wanted for Jesus. And so Caiaphas here most certainly reasoned that if Jesus is hung on a cross, all the sympathizers would look at Jesus and say, he can't be the son of God. He can't be the Messiah. This man is a cursed of God. 
Caiaphas likely did not know that this is the very way Jesus had prophesied he would die. We've seen it throughout the Gospel of John. In John 3, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is referring to how he will be lifted up on a cross. Or in chapter 12, verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's a double entendre. He would be lifted up on the cross, but then he would be lifted up in glory and resurrection in his ascension, and it would be by that way the Spirit would draw sinners to Jesus. Of course, when Deuteronomy 23 was written, that those who are lifted up and on, a, on a tree are cursed of God, crucifixion, death by crucifixion, had not been invented yet. The Persians are the ones who invented death by crucifixion. The most painful, they say, the most painful form of death in the history of the world. Somewhere between 4 to 6 B.C., the Romans had taken that and they had perfected it. It hadn't been invented when King David remarkably in a prophecy in Psalm 22, 16 writes, they have pierced my hands and feet. But death by the cross was necessary. Jesus just couldn't be killed anyway by stoning or being thrown off a cliff as they tried in Luke chapter 4. He had to be lifted up on a tree to signal what he was accomplishing by his death. He literally was a curse of God. He became a curse for us to deliver us from the curse of God. That's why it is remarkable irony that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are playing a role in fulfilling that prophecy, that pro uh, prophecy and promise. And so we've seen Jesus' trial before Pilate. Now the tables are going to turn in the middle of this trial. We're going to see Pilate's trial before Jesus. Look with me in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? In all four gospels, the grammar goes like this. Are you the king of the Jews? You? He would have been unimpressive to Pilate to look at. Unlike Saul, Israel's first king, who, who looked like a king, he was tall, he was regal. Isaiah said the true king who would come, Isaiah 53, 2, would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Such is the nature of the kingdom of God. 
Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Why would he do that? <clears throat> because he is reversing what has been turned upside down by sin. Okay? And so he came and he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Because strength in this world is a delusion. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. It's a great reversal going on because things have already been turned upside down by the fall, by sin. But Pilate's question reveals something about what they were saying to him. That is the Sanhedrin. He asked him, are you, are you the king? The king of the Jews. Evidently, they were saying to him, this man claims to be king. He's vying for Caesar's throne. That is high treason. You can't tolerate that. They were lying. But he asked him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And here we see Jesus turns the table on Pilate. And now Pilate is on trial before Jesus. Jesus answered him, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you? about me. He knew the answer. He wanted Pilate to reflect on the answer. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? At this point, if I was Jesus and you need to praise the Lord that I'm not, <laughs> I would have said, what do you mean? What have I done? I've raised three people from the dead. I have, I have healed the sick. I've made the lame to walk. I've given sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf. I've had, I have fed multitudes with just a few fishes and loaves. And then there were 12 baskets left over, each one of my doubting disciples. I've walked on water. I have rebuked the wind and the waves. What do you mean? What have I done? That's not how Jesus responded. Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. One did try to fight, cut off Malchus's ear. Gospels tell us that he basically gave Caiaphas a new ear. That was, by the way, the last recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospels. He healed this man. Tradition tells us that Caiaphas was saved by that. We don't have it in the text, but tradition tells us that. He says, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Now, apart from John 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order for you to to enter and even see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. This is the only other place in John where he mentions his kingdom. The other gospels make much more of the kingdom. John's motif that he likes to center on is eternal life. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And this must have sounded crazy to Pilate. A kingdom without a military, without weapons, without fighting, without any kind of territory. But it does complicate things for Pilate. Because if Jesus had just said, yes, I'm a king, Pilate would have had the right there on the spot to put him to death for treason. But this kingdom is not of this world, Jesus' kingdom. Now, what does he mean? Well, it would help by defining this kingdom. So let me give you a definition of the kingdom that Jesus is referring to, the spiritual kingdom. By the way, one day it's going to be material and physical. But in this present age, it's spiritual. It is the Father's rule exercised through King Jesus, the son of David, by the power of his word and spirit so that it is obeyed, displayed, and enjoyed by those who gladly and worshipfully come under its rule by repentance and faith. That's the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. And it's the world's greatest need, that kingdom. Unfortunately, we don't want that kind of king in our natural state. We want one who will meet our physical and temporal hedonistic desires. By the way, that's why most people are more fascinated with politics and who will be president rather than who is Lord. Amen. Not that the president's not important, but it's not the most important thing. Who is Lord? That is the most important thing. But we don't want that kind of king in our natural state. And it's our greatest need. In John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the the 5,000 men, in addition to women and children, maybe 10 to 20,000 people, with five, five loaves, barley loaves, and, and two fish, and then had the 12 baskets left over. And here's how they responded, John 6, 15. They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. That's the kind of king they want, who will provide for them physically and materially. The next day, Jesus comes to these very people who want to make him king, and he says to them, whoever comes to him would have a greater bread. They would never hunger again. That is their greatest need. In chapter 653, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And then it says in verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't want that kind of king. This is the kind of king Jesus is. It's the kind of king the whole world needs. But understand, he's also not saying that his authority and his dominion doesn't include this world. It does. As we know, the Great Commission says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And one day this kingdom, this authority, is going to fill every nook and cranny of our world. His dominion will reign from sea to sea, Psalm 72, verse 8. Daniel is pondering this when he speaks about this stone. This stone is metaphorical language of a kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, it's a stone cut by no human hand. It's not of man. But in verse 35 of Daniel 2, the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel says of that kingdom, it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. And it's the world's hope. Pilate didn't understand that, nor do most. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. I love that. John doesn't give us a nativity scene. Matthew and Luke do. But here Jesus speaks about the day of his birth, ironically on the day of his death. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We stop there. We'll pick up in verse 38 next week. But what Jesus says here has a, the greatest significance for us. Understand this. Come and behold him. There's your application. Come and behold him. This has great significance for us. The great prophet Moses spoke of a greater prophet who would come. One greater than Moses, one greater than Isaiah, greater than Ezekiel, greater than Jeremiah. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This prophet would be the last day prophet, God's ultimate mouthpiece. Now, John's already made it clear in the prologue. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And this Word would also come to speak. And Jesus said this throughout John, and this is important for all of us. Whoever hears my Word, John 5, 24, and believes Him 
who sent me has eternal life. It's a matter of eternal life that you hear his word. Without hearing his word, you will experience eternity in judgment. John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Indeed, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. That's why we don't need book 67. He's a prophet. But the text also shows us that he's a, he's a king. Which one is it? He's a prophet. He's a king. Later in the day, we're going to learn that he's a priest who offers up a sacrifice for atonement for sins. He's the offerer, the priest. But we're also going to learn he's the offering, the lamb of God. Why do we need a prophet? Because we're ignorant. We're ignorant. With a closed Bible, the Word of Christ closed, everything we think about ultimate reality is idolatrous. He has come to reverse our ignorance. He is our prophet. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty. We're guilty. Why do we need a king? Because we're weak and we are helpless. And because we're ignorant, because we're weak and helpless, and because we are guilty, but for our salvation. Here's what the Apostles' Creed has confessed for centuries. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. All because he was willing to suffer at the hands of Pontius Pilate. For us who believe, this has great significance. Your biggest problem as a believer is that you don't believe enough. Your biggest problem as a believer is you don't love him enough. And this is the gospel. This is the fuel to nourish and hydrate your love and faith in Jesus. He took the judgment that you deserve. On the cross, it was as if Jesus had lived your life so that God the Father could look at you as if you had lived his life. But this is also a word to the, those who have not yet bow, bowed the knee to the king. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And you will stand before him in your sins. But it doesn't have to be that way. As Adam and the musicians come forward, this sin bearer, and that's what he is, the Lord Jesus Christ, this sin bearer took our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, 
And he delivered us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, of being hung on a cross. And if you want that curse reversed on you, flee to him, come to him this morning, respond to that gospel play. We're going to have pastors here at the end of the aisles. Won't you respond this morning as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.